This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is the first lecture of the Mena Medical School series on adolescent, uh, adolescent health care series. I'm very excited to see everyone tonight. My name is Josephine Lau. I'm one of the faculty uh, in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine. Before I go into today's agenda, let me just tell, tell you a little bit about our division. Our division consists of seven faculty members and four clinical fellows in training. We have four different clinical sites. Our main site is right here at Parnassus. The, the other three sites are in Pleasanton, Marin, and San Mateo. Uh, this site in Parnassus is also known in the community as the teen clinic, which is kind of a misnomer because we actually take care of young adults up to the age of 26. Um, our age range is age 12 to 26, and we take care of, um, we uh, provide primary care and a very comprehensive uh, subspecialty practice with a main focus on eating disorder, too. Um, my hope is through this adolescent medicine uh, series that we a few of a few of us get to share our passion in taking care of this population with you. So what I'm going to be going over today are uh, some of the common symptoms associated with depression and anxiety uh, in adolescents. Share with you some of the prevalence. You know how prevalent are these conditions in the community in the population, and what are the treatment options for this population. The second thing that I want to talk about is I want to share with you some of the access issues that we as uh, clinicians face when we take care of adolescents and young adults with mental health illness. And the last part is I want to share with you how our clinic takes care of adolescents with depression and anxiety in our clinic. And I hope to uh, kind of illustrate how we do this by talking about a couple of cases. I do have a couple of disclosures. I am not a psychiatrist. My training is in pediatrics, uh, and I did a fellowship in adolescent and young adult medicine, uh, which means that I get extra training in mental health, and I also take care of a lot of common mental health conditions in my practice. But I'm warning you that this is not a talk about how to diagnose a mental health illness or about neurobiology or pharmacology of depression and anxiety. However, outside of my clinical practice, I am a health services researcher, meaning that uh, I am very interested in looking at access issues. So um, you're going to be hearing some of, a few of my slides is, is going to be talking about some issues that we face in accessing mental health care issues. And I just want to make sure that you understand that and you bear with me on that. So... The first case that I want to share with you is um, is DM. Uh, this is his initials. He is a 16-year-old boy uh, with cut, ma- cut marks that was found on his uh, on his arm by his aunt. We got a call from his aunt in, uh, first thing in the morning, wanting him to come to our clinic first thing that day. And I will come back to this case later on during the talk. Second case, KT, um, she's a 14-year-old girl, uh, came into our clinic for a routine physical. The main concern that mom has for her is um, she is just tired all the time. Even when she sleeps all the time, she seems to be getting enough sleep, but she's just tired. 
and mom would like us to get some blood work to make sure that she's okay. So what are some of the, what is anxiety? What are some of the symptoms of anxiety? So anxiety is actually a normal reaction to stress. We all have anxiety. Um, I had plenty of anxiety before this, this talk. <laughs> but it becomes a problem when it's excessive and it can disable uh, people's daily function, like how they function in school, at work, or in social situations. Uh, for people with anxiety disorders, about 5 to 30% of them also have depression or other mood disorders. An anxiety disorders consist of multiple disorders, um, ranging from panic disorders, phobias, obsessive-compulsive disorders, PTSD, and generalized anxiety disorder. Now, again, my focus is not teaching you how to diagnose them, but to kind of just let you know that there's a broad range of them. But what I do want to focus on is some of the physical symptoms that are associated with anxiety. And these are, these are the symptoms that usually what brings people into medical care. Uh, one of the main ones is pounding heart. I hear a lot about, oh, I feel like my heart is jumping out of my chest or it's just beating really fast for no reasons. Or when I'm anxious, it's just I, my heart is beating really f fast. There's something wrong with my heart. Um, when people are anxious, they sweat a lot. Um, they can have stomach aches, stomach upsets. They may have more frequent urination, or they may have diarrhea. They may have shortness of breath. Uh, they may have tremors, twitches. They may have some muscle tension or headaches. What about depression? So the hallmark for depression, basically someone has to have, a, has, has to have depressed mood, along with a loss of interest or pleasure in activities that they, they usually enjoy very much. And those two things together also becomes disabling to their daily functions, such as school, work, and other social functions. Depression can be persistent. Um, which it used to be called dysthymia, now it's called persistent depressive disorder. It can be episodic, um, major depressive disorder. It's graded by its severity, whether it has, it has any psychotic features. It also can be the depressive phase of a bipolar disorder. So when we see someone uh, coming in for depressive symptoms, we, we really need to be careful. Um, even though my role is not to diagnose somebody with a a specific diagnosis, but I need to be careful about, I need to think about also bipolar disorder. Some of the more physical symptoms that people may present with, uh, with depression includes weight changes, because um, sometimes when people are depressed, they may have more or less appetite. There, there's usually some sleep changes. Um, usually people may have problems falling asleep or uh, they wake up multiple times during the night, um, or they may have um, nightmares. Restlessness uh, or, or being slowed down. So people are either very, feel like they're on edge all the time, or they can feel like they just, they just want to sit there and don't really want to move. Fatigue or lack of energy. Um, feelings of worthlessness, um, having excessive guilt, um, inability to concentrate, or being very, very indecisive. Now, these are all symptoms that is, 
these are not at baseline, meaning that typically that person is very decisive or can concentrate. It's just during a depressive episode that these symptoms become, these, these, these are new symptoms for them. And of course, the most um, severe of all these symptoms is the recurrent thoughts of death. And this is something that we really need to screen for when people come in for depressive symptoms. Mental health conditions are actually very prevalent in adolescents. One in four to five adolescents meet a criteria meet criteria for a mental health disorder. The most prevalent one is anxiety. Thirty-two percent of adolescents in the population meet diagnosis for having an anxiety disorder. And the median age of onset is actually pretty young; is at age six. And it is more prevalent in female than male. The second most prevalent one is depression. 12% of adolescents in the population has depression. And the median age of onset is 13. And again, is more prevalent in female than male. I'm including ADHD here, even though I'm not going to go into it. But I just want to let you know that it is the third most common uh, mental health or developmental disorder um, that we diagnose people in during adolescence, and 9% of adolescents in the population has ADHD. And the age of onset is 11, and, but um, ADHD is more prevalent in male than female. Some of these mental health conditions is actually more prevalent than some of the common pediatric conditions that we are very familiar with, such as asthma, only 6 to 7% of uh, children under the age of 18 has asthma. So is diabetes. Only 9% of the entire U.S. population has diabetes. So we're talking about the entire population, not just adolescents. Why are mental health disorders so prevalent in adolescents? Part of that is biology. Uh, our brain is just wired to, to be like this. Um, just like many other medical conditions, there are typical age range of onset for a lot of conditions, and it happens that anxiety, depression, and ADHD occurs during adolescence and young adulthood. A few of the other environmental uh, uh, triggers that may contribute to anxiety and depressive symptoms during this period is sleep disturbance. As many of you may have teenagers or relatives with teenagers, you, you probably know that teenagers do not sleep enough. And not getting enough sleep definitely affects our emotions. Hormonal changes uh, that they go through during puberty definitely can affect their mood. Increased levels of stress uh, uh, from school or academic performance or just increased responsibility as, as adolescents age also can uh, contribute to more stress. Um, and the last one is substance use. And this, is, this co coincides with the time when adolescents start to experiment on um, alcohol and drugs. And both of those things can contribute to depressive and anxiety symptoms. So why do we want to intervene on adolescents' depression and anxiety or other mental health disorder during this critical period? What this graph is showing is, is the prevalence of anxiety, depression, and ADHD over time as people age. The prevalence of 
anxiety in the population stays pretty much the same as people age. As you can see, it stays around 30 to 35 percent, starting from like less than age 18. There is an increase in the prevalence of depression uh, during adolescence and young adulthood, and then it, it stays at an even level uh, as people age. ADHD kind of stays around under 10% all, all through the age groups. The bottom line is um, anxiety and depression, any of these conditions do not naturally get better with time. The prevalence stays the same. So um, why not intervene early in people's life to make sure that they have a better quality of life? And especially when we know that um, depression um, and the most serious sequela of depression can lead to suicide, I, I think it's really important for us to intervene. Another point that I want to make um, is um, this is a table that is uh, published by the CDC pretty much every year. And um, it talks about the 10 leading causes of, of death by age group. As you can see, um, suicide ranks third during early adolescence between the age of 10 to 14. It ranks second um, as adolescents get into middle adolescence and young adulthood, so age 15 to 24. It stays second through young adulthood, age 25 to 34. And then as people age, other more natural causes take over, such as heart disease, heart disease and cancer. So this tells us there's, there's plenty of opportunities for us to intervene. Uh, basically, adolescence and young adulthood is the critical time for us to intervene on mental health illnesses. And these are all, I believe, is pre are preventable deaths. So now that we've talked about, you know, how people present in our clinic, you know, the consequences of anxiety and depression, suicide, what are the treatment options out there for anxiety and depression? And uh, when you look into the literature, there's actually a, um, a randomized control trial looking at um, the treatment of anxiety for adolescents um, between the age of 7 to 16. What they did is all the, all the youth who participated in this study had a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, and they randomized um, the adolescents into four treatment groups. The first group uh, received um, cognitive behavioral therapy alone. And cognitive behavioral therapy is basically a modality of therapy that is very structured, skill-based, that uh, aims to change people's way of thinking in order to change their behavior or how they deal with problems. Um, so the first group is therapy alone, um, which I call CBT. The second group is medication alone. And the medication that they use was a, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or an SSRI which is the first-line treatment for both anxiety and depression, both in adolescents and adults. The third treatment group is a combination of therapy and medication. Um, and then the last group is placebo. So they get a pill. Um, the, the, um, the participants actually do not know whether it's a placebo or it's the SSRI. 
Um, what they found is basically um, they look at the treatment. The treatment duration was 12 weeks, and then they compare the level of anxiety using a validated scale. And when you look at this graph, the expected mean score is basically the scoring of that validated scale. So the higher the number, the higher level of anxiety a person has. So as you can see just from the graphics, all four groups looks like the anxiety level went down um, during the treatment period. But when you actually look at the statistical analyses, um, what it shows is that the combination therapy, so medication plus therapy, the medication alone, the therapy alone, they're all superior than the placebo. So all of the treatment groups actually work much better than placebo, which is a, which is a good thing. Um, and when they compare the effectiveness among the three treatment groups, the best method is the combination. So it's therapy plus medication. People have the best response. Um, medication only and therapy only, they have basically the same effectiveness. So it's not as good as combination, but it also is effective. Go ahead. Don't a lot of medications take 12 weeks to become effective? Typically, an SSRI, um, if you're at the right dose, it takes about four to five weeks to be effective. Yes? What about finding the right dose for an adolescent? Mm -hmm. So in this particular study, because it's a research study, I they have a protocol on going up on the titration, so they see their patients very often. So they, the patients actually get to the optimal dose pretty quickly. Versus in the community, like our practice, you know, it depends on whether our patients actually come back. Um, and so in their study, within the 12-week period, people actually get to the optimal dose. So... This is very good anxiety treatment. If people actually get the treatment, it actually works, helps people's anxiety. What about depression? Depression actually have a similar study, very similar setup. It's also a randomized control trial. Uh, they recruited about the same number of adolescents between the age of 12 to 17, and also randomized um, these 400 plus youth into four groups. Again, CBT, which is a therapy group, SSRI only, medication only, combination, medication plus therapy, and placebo. The result is very similar in depression um, than in anxiety. Again, all the treatment groups were superior than the placebo group. The only difference is in the effectiveness among the three different therapy modality. So combination is absolutely better than just medication, just the SSRI, but the SSRI only is better than the therapy alone. Um, I have to tell you that you know this is a really these are really good data that supports our work. I mean, these are ex the exact therapy that we recommend to our patients. This is what we do in our clinic. However, you know it's really hard, or what is ended up, what ended up our patient is getting, it really depends on a lot of different things, which I would go into when I talk about the access issues. 
Yes. The side effects of the medication? There, there are. Um, so just like... Um, so the, the main, the, the typical side effects of an SSRI is stomach upset, nausea, uh, it could be headache, it could be people may have some um, diarrhea. Now, SSRI does have a black box warning on um, having, for adolescents, for suicidal ideations, of having increased suicidal thoughts. How I counsel people um, when I start people on a medication is basically so when I consider starting a medication, that usually means that this person probably, the benefits of the medicine outweighs all the risks of taking the medications. So I definitely explain all the side effects of the medication. The suicidal, suicidal thought piece, the thing is, um, these medications does make your brain more active. So if you already have the thoughts, people have a higher tendency to act on the thoughts. So I always assess for whether they actually have suicidal thoughts. And it's a very important thing for us to continue to monitor. Um, so yes, we do monitor a lot of side effects. I was just wondering, it seems like it might be useful to do the placebo and the therapy, since placebo brings it down. Mm -hmm. Avoid the side effects. Mm -hmm. Then you have to lie to the child. But. Yeah, unfortunately, in, in, in clinical practice, we can't give placebos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. You were just uh, mentioning how you need to be really careful when you're working with a patient or interviewing them with regards to the concern of suicide. Um, earlier, you mentioned the concern about anxiety, depression, and possibilities of bipolar. Yeah. How do these medications work with a case that's possibly bipolar and not? Right, right. So uh, that's a really good question. So one of the concerns about when I mentioned that we really need to screen for whether people have bipolar disorder, it's really because, let's say people are in their depressive phase of a bipolar disorder, and if we give them an SSRI, it can actually trigger a mania. Uh, a mania basically is is a an episode that... Um, a person, it's, it's a hallmark of a bipolar disorder that people, instead of being really depressed, they are really high. They, they feel really grandiose. They feel on top of the world. They become very productive. But at the same time, they, they're also engaged in very high-risk behaviors. They may be very impulsive, um, engaging in um, high-risk sexual behaviors, gambling, whatnot. So that's why it's important to screen for whether there's any history of mania. Um, before we start an SSRI. When you say history, is that just for the patient themselves? Yes. Family it's both. Um, so it all depends on who comes into the visit. You know, we do see young adults over the age of 18, so they, they tend to come by themselves. For adolescents, you know, mental health uh, treatment is actually a confidential treatment. However, how the system set up is there is no way that I would not there's no way I can set up mental health treatment for my adolescents without talking to their parents because it's through their insurance. So I always involve the parents. But technically, it is a confidential service. So uh, one of the other outcomes that this depression study looked at is the reduction in suicide thinking. Um, at the beginning of, their, um, beginning of the study, 29% of their uh, participants had suicide thinking. And they found that, and they measured this by 
a, a validated tool to screen for um, people, whether people have suicide thinking. At the end of the study, they found reduction in all four groups on the percent of people having suicide thinking. However, the combination group showed the greatest reduction among all, all four groups. Any other questions about treatment before I move on to access issues? Yes. Um, not in my primary care practice, um, but if we so DBT is um, dia, dialectical behavioral therapy. It's very similar to CBT, but right. My my training is is basically CBT with with Zen. That's that's the. Um, more mindfulness practice. So um, we don't do that in our practice, but if we do think that people, so the, the group of patients that we typically refer for DBT are a higher risk patients. So these are patients that have chronic suicidal thinking. That this is, so their risk of basically having committing suicide is much higher than the population that we manage. So we typically refer them out for them to get DBT. Yes. And there were two more questions. Yes. I have a dumb question, but there's no way to do um, therapy, a placebo therapy, sir. It's hard. <laughs> right, right. You know, I haven't found in the literature that people have done that, but um, for other conditions such as eating disorder, people definitely have compared different modalities of therapy, such as um, family-based therapy versus cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but I think it would be pretty hard to do placebo. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I was wondering if you could speak to your experience in terms of um, adolescents you've worked with accepting either using um, a medication, mm -hmm. an SSRI, or being engaged in therapy, mm -hmm. um, and how accepting they are. Yes. Um, I would say on, on average, I, I think when people are really suffering, they, they come in and actually, so it's usually through multiple visits that these issues, issues came up and then finally that we come to a point that we help the patients to understand that okay maybe you actually want to be at a better place and then that's when people start to accept treatment um, in a medical practice it's much easier for us to prescribe medications of course um, we don't provide therapy um, because we're not trained to provide therapy so for anybody we recommend for therapy, we always have to refer them out. And the danger of referring anybody out is how often do they actually get to the care. Um, there's actually one study that is done in Boston recently that um, in Boston they actually have a much better setup than us. Um, in medical practice, all the mental health screening is paid for by the major health plans, so everybody is doing screening. And they looked at all the people who got screened. Only two-thirds of the people actually accept a referral. 
and out of the people who accepted a referral or got referred, only one in five actually had an appointment. So the number is really small when you actually have to involve other people to take care of this. And part of it is, you know, it's the nature of mental illness. I mean, that's um, when someone is depressed, they are probably not very motivated to do anything um, unless they have a very motivated family structure, parents who's really kind of make sure that they get everything that they need. Um, it's much harder for young adults um, to involve their parents. So um, despite that, you know, I, I went over prevalence of mental health illness in this population is pretty high. The percent of people who actually get, got treatment is very low. In the U.S., only about 20% of adolescents with uh, mental health disorders actually receive treatment, so one in five. Um, this problem seems to be cross-cultural. So in countries that have more universal health coverage, seems to have similar prevalence. Um, Norway has a slightly higher percent, but it's also it's still one in three people got treatments. Um, and why is that? Seems like you know we this is not a case about we don't know how to treat this condition. I mean we have randomized controlled trials that tells us that all these treatment modalities actually work. So as many of you probably um, know someone um, who, or have loved ones who suffer from a mental illness, it's, it's is really difficult to get them into care. Um, there's a lot of societal stigma associated with mental health illness, so a lot of people don't want to be labeled as having a mental health disorder. Um, in our clinical practice, our population is very diverse, so um, we get to hear a lot about how people's perception of mental health illness. So we hear a lot that, oh, he's just stubborn. This is how he is. Um, there's nothing you can do about it. This is how he is, his personality. First, it's an illness that, um, that involves thoughts and behaviors that, that can be changed. Um, I think this is something that uh, we have to deal with a lot in order for us to counsel families that, you know, this is something that we can actually help the adolescents versus, oh, this is just the way it is. Um, and for a, a lot of our families, um, they're just, they have never had any contact with the mental health care system. They're just not familiar with what it means to go to therapy. Um, I heard one of my adolescents said, well, I don't really like to talk to strangers. Why would I want to talk with a therapist? And talking to the strangers makes me more anxious. Um, so um, I also hear a lot that, well, that means that I have to share a lot of private information. Why would I want to do that? Um, so, but this is what we do with a lot in clinic, and we try to address, you know, explain to people what therapy is really about. Um, and access is a big issue in getting mental health services. So uh, many of you might have heard of the Parity Act uh, that was passed in 2008. It's a federal regulation that mandates that um, parity of mental health coverage, services coverage, and medical coverage. That happened, but um, that has not changed the access of mental health services. So um, typically for someone with a private insurance plan, 
let's say for myself, I have HealthNet. I know that with HealthNet, I can come to UCSF for medical care. But let's say if I need therapy, what I need to do is there's actually a separate number in the back of my HealthNet card. Uh, it's a completely separate insurance plan that administer um, the mental health uh, coverage. So it's a completely different network of mental health providers. It usually you can find a provider through calling a 1-800 number. Um, I, I can tell you from my own experience working with my patients, um, most of the time when parents call these 1-800 number or, or look at the website, they could never find a provider that is um, that is specialized in taking care of adolescents, basically. Yes. And, um, and the reason why is really because there's not that many people who are trained in taking care of child and adolescents in both psychiatry, psychology, or, or licensed therapists. There's only 8,300 um, child psychiatrists in the, in the United States. Um, and for a lot of the mental health providers, many of them do not have contracts with insurance companies. Um, I, I think that has a lot to do with, you know, if you're one-person practice and you have to fill out paperwork for 10 different plans, why would you want to do that? Um, it's very cumbersome. Yes? Yeah, it seems to me that San Francisco has these mental health buildings that you can go to to get. Yes. And that must be unusual. I mean, I have, I've gone to those places and never got anywhere, but um, partly because I just didn't necessarily follow through. Uh, I might have been able to get somewhere if it was persistent. But I just wondered about what do you know about those places? Yeah, so, so that is the public mental health system. So so definitely the mental health system is two two tiers or so private insurance what I describe is a private insurance system. The public insurance system in San Francisco actually for most in in the United States it's uh, county based, so it's different by county. For San Francisco um, there is a 1-800 number that you can call, and they, they do intakes. So it's called the, um, if you Google San Francisco Access Line, that's pretty much the number. And um, through that number, they can make referrals for, they will do an assessment, and then they will make referrals for, psychiat for psychiatry or psychology. So referrals to community providers. The system that you're talking about is also part of the public system, so there is a network of community mental health clinics that they take appointments, people can drop in. Um, you don't have to have insurance, I believe. Um, that I actually don't know. But you can, they take public insurance. That's, that's how people can access mental health with public insurance. So that seems like a great system. I mean, if you really need it, you can go there. Yes, but they still need to call and actually get there. Yes. Mm -hmm. I wanted to address some of the obstacles in the private sector. Um, I, I don't think, I think that there are many, but there's a lot of reasons that private practitioners, both psychiatrists, psychologists, and other um, counselors, don't participate. And one is the very low reimbursement. Yes. It's not just filling out. Right. Mm -hmm. Just the paperwork, in my experience, unless I just 
mm -hmm. has become much less cumbersome over the years. Mm -hmm. But reimbursement rates are very, mm. very low. Mm -hmm. And psychotherapists can't make that up by seeing more people yeah. an hour. Yeah. Um, and, it's a, and in our community, people there are enough people who have the capacity to pay privately, yeah. which drives it into a three-tier system. Yeah. Um, and the mental health lists that people get from the insurance companies are just a list of names. They're not differentiated. Many of the people on the lists don't take new patients or are dead or are, you know, for one reason or another, just not available. Mm -hmm. So depressed people call and they get five, six people who just are available, and you have to really have a lot of driving motivation yeah. to persist in that. Yes, I really appreciate your comment. Yeah, that's ex exactly the that kind of things that we hear from our families. Or the, the appointment is three, four weeks later. Um, even when their issue is not acute in a sense from a medical perspective, not that they're, they're hurting at risk of hurting themselves, but they still need to still needs to be intervened. Um, which, all these issues led to, a lot of our patients actually come to us for mental health um, concerns. Um, we become the first responders because we are very accessible and also we know the family and they feel very comfortable to share the information with us. Um, and they're very, very much familiar with the medical system. You know, they know our clinic number or they know their pediatrician's phone number. Um, but I, I think, you know, a lot of times we also feel frustrated that, you know, there's only so much that we can do. Um, I mean, we can prescribe medications, but we can't provide therapy. We're not trained to do that. Um, and what a particular patient may need, will need is ongoing therapy, weekly therapy, to make things better. Um, so, so this part of the talk, I want to kind of go through the nitty-gritty of what, how we do it in our clinic, um, how we incorporate everything into our medical practice. Um, and our approach is basically mental health assessment is part of a medical checkup. So um, adolescents and young adults, we recommend them to have an annual physical every year. But um, when they come in for their flu shot, when they come in for their physical, screening for mental health um, symptoms is also part of what we do. And during these visits, um, I find myself also doing a lot of education. Um, because as people start to talk about um, maybe they are having some emotional problems or problems with school or, or emotional problems that led to some school problems, um, we, we will try to normalize this. You know, it's okay to talk about these things because this is really part of your health. Um, and we do medication management for anxiety and depression and we, we, we do do it for the cases that are very, sim not very simple, but we know that it's things that we can manage versus 
um, in a case that, oh, maybe it's anxiety, maybe we need to worry about a bipolar disorder, or maybe we need to work up other things. So the more complicated cases we refer to psychiatry, but if we know that this is simple anxiety, depression, um, we typically just manage that in our clinic. And even for the more complicated cases, actually, um, I have cases that um, I have patients is already seeing a therapist, um, and um, I, I'm very comfortable working with their therapists to start medications because because the alternative is my patients to pay $200 an hour to see a psychiatrist. Um, so how do we do um, our mental health assessment? So um, what we do is a HETS assessment. The HETS assessment is a widely used tool by clinicians to conduct a psycho, comprehensive psychosocial assessment um, when we see adolescents. And this is a very typical practice in the pediatric setting. Um, we do it, I, I, I think we do it all the time, is because, you know, adolescence is our population. But in a pediatric setting, they're... Um, the visit time is probably shorter than us, so I think we probably do a more thorough job in, in than general pediatricians. And what we ask is, you know, how are things going at home? You know, who do you live with? And uh, any changes in your family system? Um, how is school going or work? Do you work? Are you having problems finding work? Um, what do you do outside of school? Um, what do you do in the weekends? What do you do with your friends? Um, are they using drugs, alcohol, things like that? Um, sexuality, are they, um, are they interested in female, male, or both? Um, are they sexually active? Um, and then we screen for suicide, depressive symptoms, and other, um, other symptoms associated also with anxiety. And also uh, screen for safety, um, whether they feel safe uh, to be at home, especially when they have raised some concerns about um, maybe hurting themselves, hurting other people. Um, we screen for their safety. We also make use of uh, validated questionnaires in, uh, during our visits to help guide our diagnosis or help us manage or quickly triage where do we, we need to go with uh, the symptoms that our patients report to us. One of the example, one one example of the tools that we use is the uh, patient health questionnaire or PHQ-9. This is a tool that is used in a lot of adult practice, um, and um, it helps us diagnose depression. It measures the severity of the depression, and it only takes three to four minutes for our patients to fill out. So I want to go back to the two cases that I've mentioned earlier. Um, the first case, DM, is a 17-year-old male um, with cut marks on his arm. When I actually uh, saw him and his aunt in clinic, his aunt gave me a little more details about what was the situation. So what happened was um, when the patient was out doing something, he left his phone at home. His aunt went through his phone, looked through his pictures and texts and all that, and found pictures of his arm with cut marks and also saw some text messages um, between him and his friends and him making statements that he is going to kill himself. When I interviewed um, DM alone, he told me that, you know, those pictures were taken 
more than a year ago. And, um, and he said that he hasn't, he hasn't really cut in the past year. And he, could, he actually showed me his arm that, see, I, I haven't been cutting. And, um, and he really couldn't remember why he cut himself a year ago when he took those pictures. Um, and from his point of view is, you know, I don't really know why I'm here. You know, I, I think my aunt just overreacted. And um, so he actually didn't even want to be there. And on reviews of system, meaning that I go through making sure that medically he's doing okay, you know, head to toe. Um, the only thing that um, that that kind of raised some concerns for me is he doesn't sleep a lot. He only sleeps three to four hours a night, and he said he has nightmares. Um, he has nightmares very often, and sometimes all of a sudden he would have shortness of breath and feels nauseous. Actually, that's when he's anxious usually in crowds, but he really has no other medical concerns. So I asked him more questions about his home situation. Um, he told me that he's been living with his maternal aunt and uncle for two years, and he actually likes his aunt and uncle a lot. He, he thinks that they're very nice. Um, but from his aunt's perspective is she's really worried about him because he doesn't talk to them. Um, he keeps everything to himself. Um, and his aunt feels like he, she needs to keep an eye on him all the time and actually thinking about maybe she needs to go to school to keep an eye on him. Um, so when I talked to the patient alone, he told me that you know his biological father passed away in a car accident when he was very young. Um, and he went to live with his uh, aunt and uncle about two years ago because his mother has some substance abuse issues. Um, for school, uh, he's in 12th grade. He, he really doesn't know what he's going to do next year. He doesn't have any plans. Um, activities, he's really into skateboarding, drugs. Um, he said he smokes marijuana a few times per month when he's hanging out with, with a few friends. He actually doesn't really enjoy smoking. It's just because when he's hanging out with those few friends, that that's what they do. He, and he's not sexually active. When I ask him more questions about his mood, uh, whether he's thinking about hurting himself, he said that he feels like he's always on edge. And he actually is angry all the time. He, he feels like he can't control his anger. Um, he gets really irritated when, when his aunt asks him questions. Um, he said he really doesn't have any current suicidal thoughts. The last time he had them was a year ago. He never had a plan of um, hurting himself. Um, and finally, he said that he, he didn't really cut himself a year ago to hurt himself, um, but he couldn't really tell me why he did that. Uh, this is actually very common. Um, a lot of our patients have um, self-injurious self behaviors. Um, the intention may not be to to kill themselves, but uh, for a lot of our patients, they may not be able to tell you why, but some of them may be able to tell you that it's a release for them. It's, it's a way for them to feel something um, and they feel better. And, and the treatment for that, um, like what you've mentioned, the um, DBT part of that addresses these issues is to find replacement behavior to replace these 
kind of self-injurious behavior. Um, when I asked him about the text that he said that he wants to kill himself, he said he was just joking with his friends. They were both making these kind of statements, um, and he was not serious about it. Um, he feels very safe living with his aunt and uncle. He actually thinks that they care about him a lot, and 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 he really enjoys living with them. Um, but he he did have a history of physical abuse by by his father, who who is um, who has passed away, which is what is in his nightmares is is from the physical abuse that he he remember his father. Um, so how I dealt with this visit um, is um, because the main concern was around mental health. I focused on the mental health with this visit. Um, the main thing that I, um, as a provider, that I needed to do that particular day was to make sure that he didn't have any active suicidal thoughts or plans to hurt himself, and he was able to contract to safety. Um, Initially, when I talked to his aunt about, you know, what he told me, she was still not very reassured um, because well, what about all the texts that he, he did? Um, what if I, I still feel that what, what if he is going to kill himself? So um, we actually spent a lot of time with my social workers. How We also have a social worker in clinic that's... Um, we ended up working with and on seems like a lot of the um, the issues between and and our patient is there's a lot of lack basically lack of communication. Um, our patients may be out and about doing something that is that is not so bad, but he's just not telling his aunt what he's doing and make his aunt worried worried about him a lot. Um, so. That made us um, think about perhaps family therapy would be helpful for this family uh, because um, part of it is, you know, aunt is really worried. There's a communication issue. Maybe what is going on is not so concerning. It's just he needs to have the skills to to let his aunt know that where he is, and that's part of that. That's part of being responsible as a growing adolescent to let the adults know what, what's going on. You have a question. Can you explain contract to safety? So uh, th what that means is, um, so he told me that he doesn't have any active thoughts or plan of hurting himself, but what I would say is if you have any thoughts of killing yourself or hurting yourself in the future, you will, you will who will you tell? You will tell your aunt, you will tell a friend, you will call me. Um, and actually, um, I do, so, so, and also contract that he will keep himself safe, that, and that's the plan of how, how he can keep himself safe is when he has these thoughts, he let other people know. Um, there are mental health providers in, in, in the audience. Are there different things that you do? Um, no? Same. Okay. And, um... So for this particular patient, there is some history of trauma that he was physically abused. Um, so, and also some nightmares that raise a flag for me of maybe he, he has some post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the mood symptoms that he's on edge, um, he's angry. 
um, maybe from the depression, maybe it's from lack of sleep. Um, but all of that with the um, with the communications issues with the aunt, I felt like this um, this unit or this aunt and this patient actually needs should have a mental health referral to be taken care of by people, a professional who can offer family therapy that can uh, work on the communications between the two of them. And also, I want my patient to get a better diagnosis uh, because it seems like there's, there are multiple things going on. Um, but what we were able to accomplish in that visit was to um, kind of talk, talk to our patient about some of the symptoms that he was having is probably related to his mood and, um, and gave him some explanation of that and also um, help him acknowledge that, you know, some of the things that he is going through. Actually, he, he said that some of the things that he's going through may, may be related to a lot of things that happened to him in the past. So um, he was somewhat motivated to talk to somebody about it. So um, hope, I, I hope that he would follow through on that. Yes. So the aunt wanted to see you the same day. Did you see him? Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And usually on the phone, um, um, there's always a doctor on call. It's, it's a doctor answering these calls. And um, we do screen for safety on the phone. And if it's really an unsafe situation, we typically send them to the emergency room versus coming to our clinic. So our second case, uh, Katie, she's a 16-year-old female, uh, 16-year-old girl, came in for a routine physical. Mom was concerned that she was tired all the time, even when she was sleeping all the time. Um, And mom would like me to do some blood work to make sure that she's okay. So I asked her more questions about, you know, what do you mean by being tired all the time? So it's been going on for two to three months. Um, and she sleeps on average four to five hours a night. It takes a long time for her to go to bed, to, to fall asleep, and, and she wakes up about two to three times each night. And she's been falling asleep in class. She's too tired to do anything, including her chores, uh, go shopping with her friends, or go, just go hang, hang, hang out with friends. When people come in for being tired, um, or fatigue or, or malaise, I also need to make sure that there's nothing else going on that is causing my patient to have these symptoms. So I do a very comprehensive screening of, to, of symptoms to make sure that they're actually okay. So she has no fevers, which is a really good sign. Um, when people have fevers and tired I, and for a long, long time, I need to, I need to think about cancer or other inflammatory conditions. Um, change in appetite um, or other new symptoms. Now, change in appetite, again, if someone reports to me that they have no appetite for two, three months and they're tired, then I need to worry about, is there something else going on? No change in her diet. Um, She does have a five-pound weight gain since three months ago, um, and which she really couldn't tell me why she thought she might have gained the weight. but when I probe a little bit, I, I said, do you think it's because you, I, I think she was active in 
maybe soccer, when, it, when it's a sports, do you think it's because you're less active than before? It's like, oh, yeah, maybe. Um, she has normal, regular menstrual periods. Um, and this is important for an, an adolescent girl because girls have heavy periods definitely can cause anemia and can be very tired. Um, and there's no significant family history that I need to worry about um, that's, um, that she's predisposed to certain medical condition that I need to look for. And then I go into her HETS assessment. So, so at home, she lives with her parents. She has one older sibling. Seems like everybody gets along well. Um, she's in 11th grade. She was getting A's and B's, but um, this quarter she's been getting C's and D's. Um, and when I asked her why, she, she said, I, I don't really know why. Um, it's just she has a hard time paying attention reading, and that's the only thing that she could come up with. Activities I, I already mentioned, um, she used to do a lot more, but um, she's not doing much now. Um, soccer occasionally, but um, decreased from before. Drugs, she has tried marijuana a few times in the past. She didn't really like it. Um, she is not sexually active. So I asked her whether there's any changes in her life, you know, any changes in school, friends, any stress at home, really nothing. Nothing, is, nothing has happened, nothing has changed. Um, she has no thoughts of hurting herself, and however, she said that it would be okay if she disappears, um, which is very concerning. Um, this is not active suicide thinking, but it's passive, um, that she's thinking that it would be okay for her to be gone. Um, she does feel feels down a lot and cries two to three times per week for no particular reason. And she said that she really just can't help it. Um, she said that she tries not to think about it, uh, but she just can't help it. She feels really safe at home and there's no history of physical or sexual abuse or any history of trauma. So with her presentation, um, I actually did a medical workup because um, hypothyroidism, uh, so if you have low thyroid hormone level, um, basically you can present with depression symptoms, uh, very similar to depression, but in addition to depressive symptoms, hypothyroidism usually comes with constipation, um, cold intolerance, um, but then the mood symptoms and then the, the symptoms of not wanting to do anything, not wanting to move. That could be from the hypothyroidism too. So I checked for hypothyroidism. Because she's an adolescent girl, um, she's menstruating, I want to make sure that she's not anemic. Um, as I was getting these blood work, um, my initial recommendation was actually to improve her sleep um, because definitely not getting enough sleep uh, can trigger some of her symptoms, even though in the back of my mind I knew that there was probably something more that is happening, but definitely getting better sleep would not hurt. So I talk about sleep hygiene, and this is a term that clinicians use a lot, and what it means is basically having um, 
provides very structured guidance on basically having very regular sleep schedule, having the same sleep routine before you go to bed, you know, take a shower before you go to bed so that you're very relaxed. Um, try not to watch TV or read a book. If something that activates your brain before you go to bed, try not to do that. Um, decrease caffeinated beverages intake uh, because adolescents, there's so many ways to take caffeines for them. You know, it could be the five-hour energy or it could be Starbucks. Um, and she may, she might have been taking a Starbucks at five o'clock every day. Um, but that's something that we do need to ask. And um, we actually use melatonin a lot too. So melatonin is a, um, it's, it's sort of it's it's a hormone. It's sort of like a hormone. It's um, it's a naturally occurring hormone that is in your brain that regulates your circadian rhythm. It helps people. It does help people. Definitely helps them to fall asleep. Um, when I use I I ask people to use five milligrams. And you can pick that up in any drugstores, Target, CVS, any one of those. Um, and initially, you know, when I did the medical workup, um, when I talk about sleep, I did mention that I do think there's something else going on. I suspect that KT is depressed. Um, but mom was very resistant to any kind of treatment because um, she... Uh, no family members has ever have any contact with the mental health system. And her question for me was, you know, how come Katie just doesn't come to me and talk to me about it? Because none of, she didn't know about any of these things. Um, and I also did a lot of education around depression. You know, I, 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 so I, I explained to mom a lot of what is Katie is experiencing she really can't control that. Just like a stomach ache. When you have a stomach ache, you can't control your stomach ache. Your depression. You can't control your depression. But you need to treat the depression. Um, and I understand that it's, it's very hard for, for, for you to know that your daughter is not disclosing this to you. But hopefully over time with therapy, she will learn the words. She will learn how to communicate that with you. Um, so... But, um, so after I did the medical workup, actually she didn't have any hypothyroidism, no anemia. I went ahead and recommend mental health treatment. Um, mom and patient declined the therapy referral because uh, she felt like it's not necessary. Uh, but she uh, agreed on starting a medication. And um, she actually has significant improvements in her symptoms. And, and the main symptoms that she reports significant improvements were her sleep and also her mood. And that is measured by um, the frequency of crying for no reason. Um, and also she uh, is sleeping better. And also it's more motivated to do more. Um, you, I can tell visit by visit, you know, how she looks is different. She has a smile on her face. She looks like a different person. Mom looks happier because uh, mom can see that she's getting improvement from the medication. And the last visit I had with her, she told me that she picked up guitar lessons, which I thought it was a really great thing. Um, so 
to summarize these two cases, so in our clinic for the first case, because it was it was kind of an acute mental health complaint, so I focus on the mental health piece. And the main thing that I did was assess for safety, um, educate a patient around some of the symptoms that he has is actually related to his mood, his anxiety. But because of the complexity of the case, um, I referred him to an outside, um, refer him for family therapy and also to see a psychiatrist. The second case, um, she came in with uh, a complaint that many other medical, medical problems can cause fatigue. So I have to do a medical workup to make sure that she doesn't have those medical issues. Um, I spent some time talking about you know, how depression presents. Um, for a lot of people, it just presents with no triggers, that it doesn't have to be a stressors in their life, and it, it, but people can be depressed. And uh, I spent a lot of time explaining to mom about, about depression and why is it okay for her to, um, why is it important for her to wait until her daughter is ready to talk to her about what's going on. Um, instead of pushing her daughter, you, you need to tell me right now what's going on. Um, and um, I manage her medication for her depression. Yes? So, with the blood um, work and all that, at what appointment was it? First, second? The first appointment. That you provided the um, medication prescription? For, no. So I, the first visit, I did the medical workup. I talked about sleep. I talked about if the lab work is normal, um, if the sleep has improved but nothing else has improved, we need to think about other treatments, including therapy and medication for depression, so that they're ready when they come back for the next visit, they know exactly what's coming. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And one thing I find with my kids is that they underreport sleep. Mm-hmm. So they would say that they were up yes. you know, all night. Mm-hmm. So they, I mean, how do you deal with that, actually knowing that they aren't getting Right. I, I think just like anything else in in adolescence, we can only go by what they report. Who knows what they're actually doing? Um, but I think in these cases, um, Sleep is such an important component in their care. Um, And it's such an important component that I know that sleep is probably affecting how they function. So I do try to get a more detailed history because when I first ask about sleep, they are usually very vague. Well, I get enough. I actually ask, so what time do you go to bed? What time do you get up? Um, Or if... And usually I have the parents in the room because the parents actually know what time they go to bed too. So I, I, I kind of see whether when, when the, when the LSS report, what is the expression on mom or dad's face? <laughs> and then if there's any um, inconsistency from the expression, I usually ask the parents, is, is that what you see every day, what, what he or she reports? Yes. Prescribe an SSRI and that's not effective, or um, there's a reaction to it that isn't 
this does happen. I mean, SSR, as a, it, like what I tell my patient, they're not magic pills. So, um, and I would say the more common scenario is people get a little better on the low dose, and then they stop coming. They never get to a good dose that actually could get them to function better. And then we see them six months later, and then they came back with relapse of symptoms. And then, um, so I think our biggest challenge is to uh, have our patients come back on a regular basis so that we can work with them to titrate to the optimal dose. Now, let's say if they have a lot of side effects on one one medication, um, we can switch to a different medication that is also an SSRI um, to see if we can find a way to go around the side effects. However, if we have tried two, three medications, not effective, get to a pretty good dose, that's usually when we refer people out. And our clinic is also lucky that we do have um, two child and adolescent psychiatrists who come to our clinic a couple of days a week as consultants so we can work with them on these issues. Any other questions? That's the end. Oh. Uh, early in your presentation, you mentioned 8,300 or so uh, yes. practitioners in this field nationwide. How do UCSF or UC Medical School students uh, speak about possibly pursuing this practice? Or are they so inclined to go another uh, safer or less stressful? You know, I don't know the answer to this question. Um, my guess is is not just from the medical. It is it, not just the medical student what they want to do. It's also training, because um, so to become an adolescent and child psychiatrist, you have to do a general psychiatry fellowship uh, um, residency, which is four years, I believe. And then you have to do three extra years to become an adolescent and child psychiatrist. And there are not that many programs to train child and adolescent child psychiatrists, child and adolescent psychiatrists. So I believe in our program here, they took anywhere from two, one to two fellows or three fellows. It's, it's not a lot. Mm-hmm. But as a society, we have a critical need for, for this. Right. I mean, we have, uh, we have to do something. But so a, a lot of adult psychiatrists in the community actually sees adolescents. Um, even though they didn't get the training, but they do see adolescents. Um, so I think that helps with the access issue, but still that doesn't kind of address the insurance issue, the payment issue. Yes. I think you said this earlier, but what are the common side effects for adolescents with SSRIs? So I would say the most common ones that we see is GI upset, so nausea, stomach ache, diarrhea. Um, occasionally, we, we will hear a headache. Um, one of the ones that uh, we hear more from young adults is sexual dysfunction. Um, so 
definitely erectile dysfunction for men. Um, I don't hear as much for my female patients. Um, and for female would be decreased um, sex drive. Mm, those are the main ones that I hear. Um, and But typically, these side effects do get do get better as we go up or with time. So it's something that if they can tolerate, I usually counsel on, if they're mild, of course, I, I counsel for them to kind of work through that. Although the sexual dysfunction piece usually doesn't go away. So if it really bothers them, we switch to a different medication. It's even possible to diagnose sexual dysfunction in an adolescent. You know, you, you'd be surprised. I, I'll, I'll, male patients actually report that, yes. Especially if, if they are sexually active. They, they can notice the difference, yes. I think it's really important with adolescents to come up right away and say, this is a side effect, and if it happens, don't be freaked out. Mm-hmm. Because I think young Adolescent boys can be very frightened. Yes. Right. Right, right. Um, Although sometimes we have to be very careful when we talk about all the side effects because if we're talking to someone who's very, very anxious, um, then they will probably develop all the symptoms that we talk about. So. So how I typically go over side effects is, you know, I'm going to talk about all these things, but what this means is it doesn't happen to everyone. It happens to some people. It may not happen to you at all, but I need to let you know. Um, yeah. Yes. You mentioned for your um, female patient that you checked for anemia and then also had what, what are some of the symptoms of hypothyroidism that would be, you know, um, writing similar to depression? So low mood. Dep- so it's it can be very similar. Basically, they have people can have depression from hypothyroidism. Thyro- your thyroid hormone does affect your mood. Um, it decreases your metabolic rate, so you feel very slow. You're slowed down. Um, other the other ones are more physical symptoms like cold intolerance, constipation. Um, I definitely have heard of psychiatrists in the field have used um, thyroid replacement therapy to treat depression too, so that definitely can elevate people's mood. So it would be a case that if you had test results coming back, that would be the first thing you would do is treat that to then reevaluate if it's more of a serious depression. Exactly. So if... If there's truly a hypothyroidism, of course we need to treat the hypothyroidism. And um, if after treating the hypothyroidism, no more mood symptoms, then we know that it's caused by the hypothyroidism. But let's say if if someone is at a good dose of thyroid replacement therapy and they're still having a lot of mood symptoms, then we need to think about maybe there's a depression on top of the hypothyroidism. Yes. What do you say to a parent who has an older adolescent child who is actively suicidal but is refusing to seek treatment? The child or the parent? The child. 
So when someone is actively suicidal, um, and if they're under 18, um, we recommend parents to one, either go to the emergency room. Two, is there is a San Francisco crisis, uh, child crisis number that they can call. You can also Google that. And when you call the crisis number, basically the crisis team is run by the San Francisco, San Francisco County. They will go to your home to assess um, whether that child is at risk of killing themselves at that moment. And what if they're over 18? Over 18 is very tricky because um, they have to be willing. Um, of course, if he or she is threatening to kill themselves, the parent can, the parent can definitely call 911. Um, but if it's not escalated to that level, it's really hard to get an 18-year-old or older to, into treatment if they don't want to. What do you say to the parent? when their young adult don't want treatment? Um, I think that's a, always a very tricky situation. And um, you can, we, we typically try to work. So the typical scenario is really we see the young adults and they don't want their parents to be involved. So they would not allow their parents to be in the room f for the visits. Um, and but let's say if I feel that things are escalating, my patient is not getting any better, then I usually broach the topic that I, I really need to get your parents involved because it seems like you need a little more support right now. I, I'm really concerned that you really can't take care of yourself. It doesn't have to be a parent. Is there any other adults in your life that you can involve them? Um, but if the parents is coming to ask for help, I, I think all I can do is offer them resources, have them look into it, and also um, kind of coach them to how to motivate their, their young adult, but it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Well, thank you for coming. Um, yeah. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.